Hi, Ralph. Hi, Jim. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. As uh, our listeners can hear or not hear, we don't have our intro, which means that we're doing this on free conference calling. And, um, hey, if any of you have to do conference calling, this is an excellent service. Uh, we, we, uh, we recommend them. Um, Ralph, something interesting occurred the other day. I was listening to NPR, uh, specifically um, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And there was a, uh, a segment where they were talking about mask wearing. Now, a few months ago, we had Kayla, a graduate student from Central Michigan University's uh, neuroscience program, on, and she was talking about the effects maybe of mask wearing on things like memory or cognitive ability um, or even distractibility. Um, but this one was was interesting. Now, coming from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, I wasn't sure that we had a real thing, so I went and looked up the study on uh, the Internet. And by golly, it's an interesting study, uh, especially for a couple guys like you and I who have beards. Hey, um, masks, wearing masks, make people more attractive to others by covering up okay. some of their face. Now, well, if you wear uh, a surgical mask, you're seen as more attractive than if you wear a cotton mask, those blue-type masks that, uh, that I wear. Uh, but any mask wearing was seen as being more attractive than non-mask wearing. What do you think? Well, that's interesting, Jim. I wonder if that is uh, because it forces people to focus on the eyes of the other person uh, and uh, the other person the maybe learns how to smile with just their eyes that uh, crinkle in the corner of, of your eyes when you're smiling. Uh, yeah. And people recognize that and respond to it. That's a good point. You know, the eyes are supposed to be the gateway to the soul. Also, so if you uh, um, ha- have just the eyes, maybe people can uh, can read you a little bit better. Okay. Well, speaking of reading, we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, today. But uh, you've got a study that you've been looking at from I think North Carolina State University on uh, yeah. an aspect of empathy, um, forgiveness specifically, right? Right, and uh, the uh, the study was uh, led by uh, Kelly Lynn Mulvey uh, and, uh, from North Carolina State, um, and she was trying to find out what makes children more likely to forgive other children uh, from early childhood to adolescence. And they looked at 185 children. Uh, They were from 5 to 14. And what they discovered was that uh, theory of mind skills, that is the ability to understand someone else's beliefs, intentions, and desires, which are different from our own that if you can understand those, that other people have different values, different thoughts, or different desires, then you're a long way to learning how to forgive them for uh, transgression. Okay, and so to say forgive, does that mean 
that uh, if someone does something to uh, tick you off or harm you in some way, and then they apologize, that you're more likely to accept their apology? Well, you're more likely to accept their apology, and you're more likely, because they've apologized, you're more likely to forgive them. But uh-huh. here's here's the kicker, because people can recognize an insincere apology from a very young age. Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry I stole your truck in the sandbox. <laughs> uh, that's not going to fly. Okay. So but you have one to be there. You have to be real about it. Okay. Did they teach these kids how to do it, or? Uh, was this just an ability that, that the group, that kids in various groups have? Well, I think it's somewhat inherent in uh, in people. Uh, I think it also can be a learned skill. Um, you know, about six or seven, say starting at uh, six, uh, Piaget, the, the father of child psychology in many ways, uh, children develop concrete operational reasoning so mm-hmm. they can now understand the causes and effects of people's actions. Okay, yeah. So, so once think- you have that once you have that, then you can begin to understand how other people operate or think differently than you. Mm-hmm. Good good point. And I believe part of the methodology in this study was that they used various scenarios that they'd spell out to the kids, and then they would ask the children um, and adolescents how they would uh, respond uh, and uh, uh, whether or not an apology was in there and how that would uh, perhaps uh, uh, repair relationships, right? Yeah, and one of, the, one of the scenarios, for example, was to create uh, in-group and out-group uh, uh, people, so they might designate uh, you, for example, as part of the green team and me as part of the yellow team. Well, it turns out that if uh, another member of the green team does something that you find offensive or warranting an apology and they say, gee, I'm sorry, uh, you're more likely to forgive them than if a member of the yellow team says, gee, I'm sorry. Okay. So you're more likely to forgive somebody that you perceive as in-group. Gotcha, someone that you know. Well, let's broaden it a little bit, uh, because, yeah, we get offended by in-group people, but we also get offended by out-group. Do you have any thoughts as to uh, whether or not we're uh, able to uh, forgive somebody in the out group? Well, I think that goes back to the sincere and insincere apologies and also perhaps to, um, I don't know what you might call it, restitution, I guess is the word that comes immediately to mind, uh, is if I'm uh, in the out group and I offend you and then I apologize uh, that goes a long way, providing my apology is sincere. But also, uh, if I say, um, 
I took your truck in the sandbox, uh, I'll give it back. You know, so I did something bad to you, and I'll I'll endeavor to uh, make amends, you know, give back. Okay, now, this, Ralph, and I didn't get it from uh, reading through the the study, uh, but this looks a lot like that concept that we're hearing a lot, what I'm hearing a lot at least, restorative justice. And that seems to be, uh, it's not just making an, an apology and amends, but then actually doing something concrete. And we're seeing this a lot in developing countries that have been at civil war with each other for you know, years and years and years, uh, thinking there's a, actually a, a commission on restorative justice in uh, South Africa, and uh, I'm not sure uh, what other uh, places uh, has a commission such as this. But uh, and I, I don't want to get into politics, but, boy, we could use somebody uh, mediating between the green team and the yellow team here in America right now. Yeah, and uh, I think, you know, the idea of of justice resonates certainly with uh, with people who grew up with the idea of democracy and courts and supreme courts and so on, that, uh, that we were supposed to try and have a society that was as fair as possible. Now, we all know that it, it's an unfair life, uh, and, uh, you know, the image of the guy who's born with the silver spoon in his mouth uh, is ever with us. But at the same time, uh, one of the things that, that I see, Jim, particularly when I, I look at uh, at some of the things that the courts are sentencing people to uh, is... Uh, there's, let's say, uh, uh, nine months in the county jail, plus you will pay back over the next ten years the organization that you embezzled from or whatever the crime was. Uh, and it's an attempt to say, okay, us putting you in jail takes you out of society and, and punishes you, but the real punishment is that you're going to have to pay back uh, what you unfairly um, advantage with. Interesting. So it's kind of interesting when you begin to take a look at uh, what I would call basic research, uh, like the research done at uh, North Carolina State. We can very quickly, if we want to think about it, begin to see how uh, the results of a study done with 185 kids could apply to a larger uh, slice of society. And, you know, that's the nice thing about uh, psychology. Sometimes you get to where you aren't expected <laughs> that you're going to end up, you know, with, uh, as we begin to d- analyze the uh, uh, data. Let me uh, tell you about a study that I recently uh, took a look at, Ralph, and I thought of you when I, when I uh, saw it. And... Um, you are, I think, one of the most inveterate readers I have ever met. You know, uh, all, all, you know, from the time we met at age three, you know, had you had a book in in your face and uh, just you know continually you know, going on. And the, the interesting thing, to me at least, was that the books 
weren't necessarily academic textbooks. And in fact, uh, I didn't like to read at all after kindergarten uh, until you introduced me to a book, and I can't remember the name of it, but I remember the author. It was a sci-fi book by a guy named James Blish. And that got me hooked back into reading again. But you read a heck of a lot more than I do, or at least you read a different genre uh, than I do, uh, in that you read almost you know anything that's uh, that's fiction and uh, uh, detective and cowboy and uh, uh, right. Yeah, well, certainly I have a wide ranging, you know, uh, interest in terms of what I read. Um, for example, I was uh, out with my wife, and we went to uh, the Goodwill store. Uh, we had some things to take in, and we dropped them off, and then we went inside. And they always have a bookshelf. And so I picked up uh, a book on uh, uh, manners and uh, politeness, uh which I thought would be interesting and maybe give uh, some quotes that might be useful in, in one of our podcasts. Uh, and a book on, uh, on uh, a Renaissance figure, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who I'm sure all of our listeners have heard of, a, a biography of him. And... Uh, a book from the uh, Dalai Lama. Uh, you know, I, certainly a wide range of, of topics there, in addition to, uh, you know, uh, Lee Child and uh, and uh, Harry Patterson. Potter and, you know, uh, sci-fi, etc., etc. Uh, and so I think one of the things that you can characterize me as perhaps in my reading is uh, a dilettante rather than somebody who is totally focused. Uh, yeah, right. You read a lot for fun. And that's what this um, uh, study seemed to indicate, that kids who read for fun, and it didn't matter if it was Lee Childs or the Dalai Lama or Leonardo da Vinci, um, had um, better verbal skills uh, later on in life. And you know, uh, the last two weeks now, we've been looking at early childhood experiences. We looked at um, preschools, and we saw yeah. that kids who went to a quality preschool that uh, uh, really stressed things like um, uh, uh, cognitive ability and reading did better later on. We talked about a study um, where children who were, let's see, I'm trying to think of the... the the, what we found here, the kids, you reported on the study, uh, the one from from uh, Penn State University, uh, the children who got early, what, early, training? Yeah, early intervention, uh, they were read to, they were uh, asked to think about what was going on, so, you know, you right. read... Uh, um, Dr. Seuss, uh, Horton, here's a who, and uh -huh. what is what does that mean to you? Well, you know, there's there's the who who compared to the elephant is 
minuscule, but uh, he has an important uh, place in the story. So okay, right. people are people are important, no matter what their size. Okay, good. And then last week we talked about the University of British Columbia study that uh, showed that uh, kids who were raised in uh, uh, green spaces, raised closer to nature, uh, did uh, did better. So I think we're kind of honing in on a lot of different things here. But the bottom line, Ralph, is that early experiences really matter. And yeah, they they really do. They really do shape the person later on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know... One of, the, uh, one of the things, Jim, I'm going to ask you a question uh, totally off the wall and unrehearsed. Uh, do you remember when uh, MTV came out and we had, uh, we had the first uh, music videos that came along with with uh, pop songs. Yeah, I remember that. I really, I really hated that. And I'll tell you why. And it, it is connected with reading. Uh, one of the things that I thought when I watched uh, video music on MTV and they had the, uh, the video of whatever the producer had put together people dancing or or whatever. Uh, when I hear music, I have my own images in my head. Uh-huh. And the music uh, videos not only displaced the images in my head, but they meant that they never came back. When I heard the song on the radio with no video... Uh, I went to what the producers had put as the video to go with the music. So I found it intrusive. Now, I think one of the things that uh, I'm going to connect to reading is that people who are uh, readers of, well, who are wide-scale readers, we tend to end up with, images in our head as we read and uh, the stories kind of make a video if you will they make a they make a movie they play out in your mind yeah and they can but be the idiosyncratic that is my my image that uh, I, I take away from Lord of the Rings might be different from the image that you take away right right and okay. the thing with reading is if I read uh the Hobbit, uh, which I, I did probably uh, 25 years ago, if I read it again now, it would make different images than it did then. Right. Because I have changed and my you know, view, view would be different. Yeah, I understand. So uh, the, the free reading that you, uh, that you do, or these uh, children do, uh, sets up their own... Uh, uh, stories, their own images, which later they translate into good uh, verbal ability, right? Right, and uh, you know, one of the things that we uh, we know uh, from uh, just general uh, things about people functioning and people uh, having success 
is that uh, the higher your verbal ability, uh, the more likely you are to succeed in school, which emphasizes verbal ability, but also uh, the more likely you are to succeed in life. You know, that was one of the premises behind uh, Sesame Street, that if you can teach a child to read, they'll have um, a, an important skill that uh, will serve them later on. Well, we talked about the over the last three weeks of the importance of early intervention and, and uh, early childhood experiences for positive outcomes. Well, unfortunately, early experiences sometimes lead to negative outcomes. And next week, Ralph, as you know, we're going to be talking about adverse childhood experiences, things that kids experience between the ages of 0 to 17, which uh, uh, may lead the... Uh, uh, or lay down the pathway to uh, later dysfunction. Now, we've done this uh, before. We had a series in, uh, well, I guess it was about a year or so ago, a series of about five different uh, podcasts on uh, ACEs, uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences. More has uh, come out in the last few years, and so we want to bring our listeners up to date with uh, what we're learning about adverse childhood experiences. And maybe we'll even get Sheila to come in because she's got some interesting thoughts uh, that she was talking to us about yesterday, right, Ralph, on uh, the role of concussion. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So until next week, this is Jim. And Ralph. Saying keep your stick on the ice. Because we're all in this Together. together.